What's up, money honeys? This is Joanna Alexis, host of the Milk and Money podcast. I am so excited to be here today. We are going to demystify money for every female entrepreneur who is not a numbers person. My goal is to help you feel confident with your business and personal finances to help you profit, scale, work smarter, not harder, and build real wealth. Each week, we'll bring on exciting guests who will share actionable tips to help you get closer to financial freedom. This podcast is for grown and ambitious women who are ready to kill it. All right. Today, we've got Lindsay on the podcast, and she is Mind Money Balance, and she is a financial therapy coach. Lindsay, can you tell us more about what that means? Yeah, thanks so much, Joanna, for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So financial therapy is exactly what it sounds like. It's when a person is a therapist, and they get cross-training in financial psychology and financial literacy to help couples and individuals with their money mindset and their money stories. That's awesome. And actually, Lindsay shared with me how she was a therapist for a really long time and you are seeing that gap, right? Can you share just really quickly a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. As you mentioned, I am a trained therapist and I had been seeing clients mostly around anxiety and depression. And as you can imagine, money stuff would come up and I wasn't really trained to do anything aside from say, oh, that's tough, how does that make you feel? Or (laughs) on the other side, because I was trained as a social worker, we were trained to do a lot of advocacy work. So I could say to them, hey, here's an 800 number for the energy company, let me help you sort out a payment plan. But there was a huge gap in between, how does that make you feel? And here's an 800 number that I feel was missing and money was a huge pillar of all of our lives and I felt man this is a missing piece right here and in my own life I had an interest in personal finances and so I went to Dr. Google to try and figure (laughs) out how can I fill this gap how can I help and I stumbled upon financial social work and financial therapy and got training and now I'm a financial therapist. That is awesome. And I think this is really important for people who are wanting to get married or for people who are married, because the number one thing that we hear over and over again is that finances is the number one reason for divorces. Yeah. So depending on what study you're looking at, finances and infidelity, they always battle it out for number one and number two in terms of causes for divorce. So it really depends, but I am a child of divorce. A lot of my friends growing up, I'm millennial. So a lot of us, I think 50% of our parents were split up. So we're very well aware of what happens when you don't talk about your issues. And I think our generation has done a really good job of working on normalizing counseling and mental health and therapy in general, but we still don't have a lot of language and understanding around talking about money. And when it comes to taking two people with two different backgrounds and two different money mindsets and smashing them together when they engage in the legal thing that is marriage, you've got a recipe for 
potentially some heat and often a lot of arguments or even if it's not arguments, a lot of my clients, it's just, we don't talk about it at all. So there's a huge missing piece in their marriage. Yeah. And when you think about the reason why people don't talk about it, like what what causes that? Is it because they're not having those conversations up front? You think that girls are falling in love too fast? What do you think causes that? Yeah, I don't think it's um, moving too quickly. I think it's that we really just don't talk about money in general. And when we think about marriage, we often think about romance and we think about the wedding. We think about what life might be like in the future. But oftentimes those thoughts and those fantasies don't come along with what is it going to cost to afford those things. And there's nothing particularly sexy about talking about how much student loan debt you have. I personally love a money date. I think they're fantastic. But if you're coming at it with whatever your version of financial baggage is, even if it isn't debt, it's hard. It's really hard to engage in that conversation. And we just don't really set up space for couples to talk about it. Yeah, I would agree. So for people who don't know what a money date is, can you elaborate what is a money date and what makes a money date successful? Oh, I love money dates. So a money date is when you and your partner sit down with, I like to have a light agenda, nothing too long, but I like to have something that is always consistent during that money date. And that's usually checking in on money coming in and money going out. And if any changes need to happen. So that's step one is like cash flow or your spending plan or your budget, whatever language you like to use um, in that partnership. And then I usually like to talk about some medium term and longer term goals. And to me, that is where the fun and joy of the money date comes up because you're thinking about, ooh, how can we make it happen to get to that European trip in a year and a half? Or how can we make it to Hawaii? Or how can we you know, save money for a down payment on a house and how can we reverse engineer our way there and set up recurring, recurring contributions to a savings account or an investment account so we can make that happen. So a money date is just taking stock of what's going on in your financial life, in your relationship and working on one or two additional goals at a time outside of just regular monthly cash flow management. Yeah. And high level, it sounds really easy, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, why isn't everyone doing this? But to your point, you talked about the baggage that people bring to the table. So as a financial therapist, like how do you work through some of that? So for example, let's say like one person has a lot of debt, whereas one person doesn't like, how do you like, how do you get on the same page about that? Yeah, I like to rewind way past even what they are currently bringing to the table to start to get a deeper understanding of how each person believes what they believe about money. And that's going way back into childhood. So research shows that most of our beliefs about money are solidified by the time we're about eight or 10 years old, which is bananas. Cause if you think about any like elementary school kid, walking around managing money, like, of course, it's going to be difficult to manage as an adult. So I like to go way back in time and ask some of those probing questions about how did your household manage money? And 
if a person says to me, we just didn't talk about it, that also speaks volumes about what money was and wasn't in the household. So if you weren't speaking about money, then you got the message, we don't talk about money, it's impolite to talk about money, right? If you saw growing up your parents always fighting about money, you might have gotten the message that talking about money is going to make you angry or it's going to be dangerous. We absorb so many messages as children and how might that be showing up now? So before we even get to who has debt, who doesn't, I like to get to where did your money story start taking shape and how might that be impacting you today? Then moving into the nuts and bolts, but I always lay the groundwork first. So oftentimes my couples will come in and they'll be like, are we doing it? Are we doing it wrong? And I'm always like, I don't know. I'm not even gonna talk to you about your money for a little bit. First, we have to go back in time. And people get frustrated with that answer, which I get that you wanna fix whatever the quote unquote problem is. But in order to fix it, we have to dig deeper than just cash flow and numbers, right? The cash flow and numbers is the easiest part. It's all the other stuff that we associate with money that's really difficult and tangled up. That's a really good point. So for example, like for me growing up, yes, my parents fought about money when I was younger, but because my family are all like in finances, like it just became so normal for us to talk about money mm -hmm. in the sense where, hey, like what stocks are good to invest in? Or, you know, what should we be doing or with our money to grow it? And those are the conversations that my family would have at the dinner table. Whereas like for my partner and my boyfriend, like his parents didn't talk about it because every single time we bring it up, like he wants to shoot it down. You know, let's not talk about that in front of company or let's not talk about it at all. Mm -hmm. So like in a situation like that, like how do you how would you help people advance their money mindset? Yeah. Oh, that's such a, first of all, thank you for just even being open enough to share where you guys are each coming from. So you learned a lesson of sure money can be tense, right? You told me at first there was like a lot of fighting, but you can work through it and learn how to find fun in it by talking about what stocks are trending and who's investing in what and gamifying it and finding the excitement and the knowledge of money. So that might be more of your money story and whatever his money story is that money is means tension. And I really adore being with Joanna. So I don't really want to fight with her. So money means I'm going to fight with her. So we're not going to go there. So in that case, Rather than talking about, again, like a here and now problem, should we save or should we spend, it might be like, hey, I notice when I bring up money, you tend to shoot it down. We don't have to get into the money right now, but can you tell me a little bit about why that's your go-to or why lately that has been your go-to? Just to open up that dialogue. And you can also take some ownership too. So you might say something like, hey, babe, I know I love talking about money and it's probably a little bit much for you. What can I do so that when we bring it up, it's more, or when I bring it up, it's more approachable. So first again, just like setting the, those, setting the groundwork so that it is a comfortable and safe place. So yeah, that would be a starting point. That's really good. And how often do these money dates occur or how often do you recommend them? When I first start working with couples, I recommend money dates weekly. And then as we get our work going and you start to get into a flow and you just like anything, the more you practice it, the easier it becomes. 
Then I can recommend that you go back to monthly. My partner and I are down to quarterly right now, which feels really good. And I still love money dates. We probably talk about money in an offhand way more often than that. But I think for most people, monthly is a nice sweet spot because when I find you're talking about money all the time, every few days, it actually just tends to increase a lot of the anxiety because not really too much is changing from Monday to Thursday in your money plan if you're looking at it big picture. Sure, some money might be coming in and going out, but in terms of long-term goals or midterm goals, you're just going to be rehashing those same conversations. Yeah, definitely. So as far as the agenda goes, I know you had mentioned like, hey, you probably want to first start it out with talking about just like, where do your beliefs about money come from? But then moving forward, you also mentioned, okay, probably the one standard thing you want to have at each money date is about cash flow, like what's coming out, what and then you talked about like short term and long term goals. But then, you know, like, how do you continually make it exciting? Because I feel like I don't know, it gets to a point where, okay, oh, hey, we need to tackle, you know, the mindset, we need to tackle the debt. But then like, how do you even like approach that? Yeah, so in terms of making it fun, my friends, Bud and Sarah from the Confident Couples podcast, they are amazing at this. They do life dates where they talk about money, but then they also talk about career and self-development. They're fantastic, but they literally go out to one of their favorite bars or restaurants once a month sit up at the bar, bring their like paper, and they make it a, a literal date. My money dates are much more casual. We're usually sitting across from each other on the couch with a beer. <laughs> but to make it fun is to like really help to, to your point about mindset, to start saying, hey, money, talking about money can be fun. See, we're actually like out on a literal date enjoying it. So making taking like actual dates, like going out on a hike and stopping at the top and digging into your money date, starting to associate money with enjoyment and fun is hugely important because so many of us get caught up in this idea that money has to be scary or boring or anxiety provoking. And if all we're ever doing is sitting across from each other at the table with just like pens and calculators and whatever else, of course it's going to feel boring and not great. And then you're going to start associating money with boring and tedious and stuff like that. So to make it fun that way. And then to your point about just like how to keep those goals exciting and fun, to me, it's always about aligning your values with those goals. So why do we want to take that vacation to Europe? Or why is it important for us to save money for a home? And then digging into that. So maybe the home provides security. It provides a space for you to host people and community and relationships are really important to you. So thinking about the bigger meaning behind those financial goals can help to keep it exciting and fun. This is really helpful for people who are tackling this and those who are young, who maybe aren't in a serious relationship or maybe are on the verge of getting married. Like, what are those questions that we need to be having or what are those conversations we need to be having before we get married? Yeah, before you get married, you do have to get down to brass tacks a little bit and ask about things like, what kind of financial, what's our financial history? What are we bringing into the partnership or into the marriage? Are we bringing in debt? Are we bringing in some assets? Do we have student loan debt? Is it consumer debt? What does that look like? And how will we manage our money moving forward? 
those are hugely important to know where you are individually and then together talking about how are we going to tackle this as a team? Are we going to combine our efforts to pay down, let's say your example earlier, one person has student loans, the other person doesn't. In my opinion, once you're married, you're, the law thinks that your money goes together. So I think it makes sense for both people to help pay down that debt because both people are probably benefiting from the education that person got having taken out that student loan. And it takes away some of that resentment of the of like money going out just for your student loan or your debt or like separating it in that way. So to say, no, as a team, as a unit, we can do this. But anyway, that's an opinion, not what you have to do. But for sure, talking about what financial pictures are you bringing into the relationship? How do you want to manage money as a team? And then also thinking about some short and long-term goals just to make sure you guys are on the same page. Like you might both be thinking, oh, and in five years, I'd love a house and a car and 1.2 dogs. But if you don't have that conversation, (laughs) I was going to say like the 2.5 kids, but dogs came to mind because I can hear mine like patting around. (laughs) But if you don't have those conversations, one of you might be thinking, yeah, we're going down the road of homeownership. And one of you might be thinking, no, I want to continue like engaging in our wanderlust forever and ever. So unless you have those conversations, that money isn't going to be there to fund those goals. For sure. I'm just going to share like different situations that yeah. I've had, like where one person has a large amount of credit card debt and they're bringing that to the table and it feels selfish because it's different from student loans where in the mm-hmm. sense where student loans potentially both you guys could be benefiting it because of the income that you're bringing in mm-hmm. but when you start talking about credit card debt like how do you talk your clients through those situations mm-hmm. so when it comes to credit card debt i'm a huge proponent of making sure that we don't label things as good and bad or as poor choices or good choices because there's so much of that in the personal finance community of saying that was a dumb choice. So I'm talking about who says things like that to their listeners. And we already have enough shame as humans anyway. And we already deal with enough emotional baggage when we have credit card debt or student loan debt or a personal loan. We already are beating ourselves up enough So to take that shame away and say, look, whatever is done, we can't go back in time. We can't unspend it. We can't undo it. All we can do is work with what we've got and move forward. So instead of continually beating yourself up or nagging your partner for their past behaviors, it's you have to look at the here and now and what are you going to do to make that change. And oftentimes that change is not only paying down that debt, but thinking about how they got there in the first place. What were some of the things that they were trying to fill with that personal loan or that credit card debt? What kinds of things were ending up on that card and how can we prevent it from happening again? Not because it's shameful, but because clearly at this point in time with a mountain of credit card debt, you don't feel good about it. So we don't wanna be here again. We don't wanna repeat those same behaviors. So first saying, put the past in the past, let's focus on the here and now and how can we prevent it from moving forward? Yeah, that's really good. I like what you said about trying to fulfill certain needs that they had with different things that they were buying with their credit card because I truly believe that like people are out there are spending money to numb certain feelings that they're having what are those things that really hurt 
and really talk about those, right? Exactly. We know that a credit card swipe or more likely today just having your card stored on your computer, right? Like Google Chrome will store your credit card now mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. or Google Pay or an Apple Pay, all that stuff. But we know it's an instant gratification thing. We know that getting that little like purchase order show up in your email is giving you that same dopamine hit that a like on Instagram gives you or that a like on Facebook gives you. We know it's that same response in our brains. So it's the short term, but to your point of what are you trying to do with that? Where is that joy or excitement missing elsewhere in your life? And how else can you find ways to fulfill it that don't involve an automatic purchase? Yeah. I liked what you said before when you started going down the path around income and you just hit on it really briefly. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about when it comes to money, like who making more money to me in my mind, and I feel like a lot of people feel this is it equals power in the relationship. Yeah, it's really hard for money to not equal power in romantic relationships. Even when we try really hard for it to not do that, what tends to happen is there are these subtle things. So let's say you're, in, we're going to call them, I don't know, Bob and Sue, okay? <laughs> We've got Bob and Sue, a generic heterosexual couple, and Sue makes more money than Bob by a landslide. And things seem to be going pretty well for this couple. They seem to be getting along all right. They're managing their money okay. But Bob will say things to Sue that are these subtle little digs that indicate, I know where I stand because you bring in the money. So things like, oh, I don't care you make that choice because you're the one bringing in the money. Or, yeah, you can afford to go to the spa. Don't, you forgot about me. So subtle little things like that. It's rare that Bob is coming in and saying, excuse me, I feel like you're owning all the power in the relationship because of the money you're bringing in. It's usually not that straightforward. It's usually much more subtle. So I always, with my couples, try to say, rather than shaming the person who's bringing in more money, I say, how can we allow both people in that partnership to level up, to hold that power together and really create a strong power couple, a strong, healthy dynamic as a duo. And that means open and transparent conversations about money. That means the person who's making more money, not like throwing shade at the other person. So it means having equal footing, regardless of who's bringing in more money, because we know life throws curveballs at us. We know that person who's making more money could lose their job tomorrow. So we can't get caught up in putting all the power in that person's hands. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I'm just really thinking through when it comes to and a lot of people talk about this, like the masculinity versus the femininity. I don't know, even know if that's the right word. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Or if that's even a word. It's crazy to me because a lot of women will be like, Oh, I want to be this strong, independent woman. And then what we're learning from research right now is that when a woman isn't feminine, and a man isn't masculine, it causes issues in the relationship. How do you overcome that part in the relationship? Yeah, what you're talking about is so important. It's, and what I'm hearing behind everything you're saying is that we get that these gender stereotypes are outdated, 
But the reality is that we still live in a society that rewards women for being feminine and men for being masculine. And as much as we try to be progressive and open-minded and practice what we preach, we are products of our environment. So until we have this, thankfully we're in a space right now where there is a huge sea change of people saying, yes, I can be a woman and make a lot of money. I can be a man and stay home and raise children and be comfortable in whatever gender I identify in, it still takes a lot of work. And so sometimes I think just like alleviating some of that blame can be really helpful. So in a partnership, instead of like a woman who's making more money being like, oh my gosh, I'm making this money, but I'm like, feel like I have to be uh, bitchy or whatever in order to have my money. So saying, hey, this is a message I've learned from society that powerful people have to act that way. But I don't have to agree with that. And I see that message, I hear that message, and I disagree with that message and move on. But it's doing that again and again constantly and for both people in the relationship to do it. And for each partner to catch the other one, not in a negative way, but just as a gentle reminder. So if he sees her really downplaying her success because she doesn't want to be seen as like masculine, to say to her like, Hey, I I can see you're trying to say that raise you got wasn't a big deal, but it's okay to celebrate it. Let's celebrate it tonight or something like that. I think those are really good tips for ambitious women. How does it become okay? Is it really dependent on the person that you're with or are there other ways for it to be more acceptable? I think for it to be more acceptable, we have to do some of the things that you're doing, Joanna, and that's creating spaces for people to talk about this and to talk about it freely and comfortably. We have to, as strong, independent, powerful women who are also in marriages or serious partnerships, say that, say, hey, I am strong and powerful and and I'm also in a very serious relationship where I do have to have collaborative conversations with my partner. It doesn't mean I'm no longer a strong woman to have conversations with my partner and have to agree on things. I can do both and to talk about it and have those things reinforced by others. So it you're so right that it can't just be one person or just the couple also has to be getting support from family and friends and other communities that can cheer them on when they're finding themselves getting stuck in those patterns. Yeah. What else would you say in this topic that you've experienced with your clients? I just, I, it doesn't surprise me anymore, but it does. It's just how many women are guilty about making money. They come in and they say things like, I know I make a good living, but I feel really bad about it. Or I know I earn good money, but I feel bad that other people don't too. There's so much guilt and shame over earning this money, which I don't tend to see as much in my male clients. And they might be having it and they're just not voicing it with me, but I hear all the time with women, so much of my work with them is saying like, You can be a good person who has money. You can be a good person who manages her money really well and takes care of herself and invests in her future and then can give back to her community in charitable ways or however that feels good to you. But we have to get over this idea that somehow a woman being ambitious and wanting money somehow makes her a bad woman. Yeah. 
honestly, I can go on and on about this. There are people that I work with who are senior directors, right? Who are making probably two to three hundred thousand dollars at least, and but they're still expected to be home to play that feminine part of cooking mm. dishes, like being the mother. And mm-hmm. it, it's almost like you're doing it all, right? So mm-hmm. that's superwoman. And I know that's it's a good and a bad term. So yes, you can do anything you put your mind to, but at the same time, like you probably shouldn't be doing everything by yourself. Yeah. And you're so right, Joanna, because the stats also show for women who out earn their male partners, they end up taking on more housework, which is just mind blowing about how deep this stuff runs. It's almost like they feel like they have to compensate for quote unquote, peeing out of the house and picking up additional stuff that is more feminine. And interestingly, they pick up more chores like cooking, cleaning, and laundry. They don't pick up the chores like outdoor household stuff. So it's fascinating that this is still an issue. It's crazy. And to your point, we also have to be okay saying, now that I have a certain income, I'm comfortable and confident enough to pay somebody who is an entrepreneur to come and do my laundry or to meal prep for me or to drop off my kids at school. We have to also be okay saying it's okay for me to outsource those things. That's what money helps to afford me. It means that I can go out, earn a good income and also not come home and do an additional six hours of housework. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to turn the tail on its head and flip it the other way. (laughs) Yeah. and flip it the other way because you have the other spectrum of women who are in a relationship with they got cornered into being a stay-at-home mom right the people who not necessarily that they couldn't work but it just made financial sense Mm -hmm. how many times have you heard that all the time and so many women they think it's a choice whether or not they go back to work and then they learn really quickly that it's a financial decision more than a personal choice. And that's hard too for women who are in those situations. Like there's definitely a joy being a mother, getting to raise your children, but then also feeling that sense of belief in yourself, like believing that, Hey, I'm smart and Hey, like I can make it out in the workplace and Hey, I can make money and gain some power in this relationship. Can you share a little bit more about these different situations and how those clients have been able to overcome situations like this? Yeah. So one thing that I love to talk to for my clients who are stay-at-home moms or stay-at-home parents is that we tend to do better as humans when we have multiple identities. For the person who only identifies as a stay-at-home mom, they will struggle more than a person who identifies as a stay-at-home mom, a part-time volunteer, a chef, a Mm -hmm. yogi, a whatever, right? When we have more than one interest, then we become a multifaceted person. And when we corner ourselves, to your point, you get cornered in this identity, then it's really hard when that identity changes. And inevitably, a stay-at-home mom will not always be a stay-at-home mom because there's a window of time in which those kids will leave the house. And then they struggle with now what I do, because for the last 18 to 20 plus years, that has been my role. So with all of my stay at home parents, I always tell them you have to find something else 
that helps to define your identity, whether it is organizing a neighborhood book club or whether it is going to Pilates every day of the week, you have to do something else that helps to create a well-rounded identity so that not just to say like from a financial perspective, but also just from a mental health and well-being perspective. Yeah. And we talked about how money and it's unintentional many times defines the power in the relationship. So for these stay at home moms, if they wanted to make a financial decision and the husband who makes all the money says no, like, how do you help them overcome that? Yeah. So that's exactly why we have to be really careful in marriages about equating money to power because then we also trap that woman financially and that is not okay. We know that if you added up what a stay-at-home mom is doing in terms of cooking, cleaning, nanny, like the nannying part, the chauffeuring, you're looking at 70 plus thousand dollars a year in labor that person is doing. So I, for my people who get really stuck on numbers, I usually like to throw that at them and just say, you are doing a job, you're doing a $70,000 job. So let's not forget that. And sometimes that can help the partner who is earning the money to go, oh, now I can put like a monetary value. Not that you can put a monetary value on parenting, but just to say those tasks so that you can say, we each have equal say over what this money does for our family. And that's why I'm such a huge proponent of having a shared bank account. Um, I probably get into it more often than I'd like to admit on Instagram about the importance of having a joint account. Even if you have theirs, mine, and ours, you must have an ours account because the second you separate those accounts 100% is when you start having separate financial lives. And that is when you really start getting into trouble. So for my clients who have one parent who stays at home, I like for both people, whether they are working and earning a paycheck or whether they are working and not earning a paycheck as a stay-at-home parent, to say, look, we each get a certain amount of discretionary funds. That means either of us can go out to lunch, either of us can go to the gym or whatever falls outside of our monthly expenses and have a little bit of autonomy and freedom. So for the woman who's in this situation where their husband is saying no, and I make the money, I get to make the decisions, like how do you help influence them? Yeah. So when I hear, or is that a red flag? Yeah. You you totally took the words out of my mouth. I said, when I hear things like that, I go, that's a red flag. And I won't get too much into it because that's not the topic of today, but there are signs of financial abuse. And some of those signs include saying things like that. Like I control the money. I control the power or not giving your partner access to the accounts or being secretive about passwords that have to come with money. Those are all really big red signs that there may be some financial abuse happening. Wow. I've heard the term before financial abuse, Yeah, but it didn't really hit me until one of my friends had shared with me that her sister was in a relationship where she was financially abused. She had kids with this person. They had two children and he continued to promise her all these things. And, and to your point, like, he cornered her like she had no choice but to stay with him because who was gonna watch their kid yeah it's really scary and really dangerous and so certain things can be worked through in therapy i believe that most people have the power to change otherwise i wouldn't do what i do 
And I do think there are times when it's best to say this is a, an abusive situation or this is unhealthy, this is toxic, and it's time to leave. Yeah. Wow. I know things got heavy. <laughs> Sorry. That's and okay. That's why we have these conversations. I know these are really tough questions to answer being on the other side. So I really appreciate you yeah. really sharing. But at the same time, like I'm sharing like real life questions that people have. Yeah. And really want to know if you're listening to this, I want you to know like you're not the only one out there. Yeah, absolutely. Financial abuse is one of the forms of abuse that gets hidden. It's really easy to hide. Wow. Can you please share with us anything else that you would want others to know about money and relationships and helping that be successful? Yeah, I would just say that wherever you start, wherever you are. So if you are listening to this and you're like, wow, I don't even have a spending plan or I don't even have a budget, that's your step one. If you're listening to this and you're like, wow, I've never sat down and talked to my spouse about what some of their first money stories were or what some of their first money memories were, that's a great starting point too. There's no one way to do your money. There's no wrong way to do your money. There's just ways that work for you and for your relationship, which is why having these money dates and conversations is so powerful and so important. Thank you so much, Lindsay, for being on the show. I appreciate your insights. There's a lot more behind it when it comes to the psychology of money and the mindset. It's it's beyond the numbers. Yes, it is. Thank you so much for having me. I'd love to talk about this. And I'm so thankful that you're out here creating a space where we can keep talking about this stuff. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to share with a friend, rate, review, and subscribe. And as always, stay happy, healthy, and wealthy. 